Tal Haver Shabowski is the director of the Paris Yiddish Center Madame Library. He is the founder and editor of Mikan Ve'ela, Journal for Diasporic Hebrew, and editor of Der Yiddisher Tam Tam, periodical for Yiddish learners. He translated into Hebrew Edward Said's Representations of the Intellectual, Mikhail Dekel's The Universal Jew, Masculinity, Modernity, and the Zionist Movement, and edited Daniel Boyarin's The Talmud, A Personal Take, Collected Essays. He is currently a PhD candidate at the History Department of Humboldt University, Berlin. Welcome to the creative process. Well, thank you so much for having me. So we are here in the Maison de la Culture Yiddish and the Madame Library. Just tell us a little bit and introduce us to the center. Of course. So the Madame Library was founded in 1929 by a group of Jewish immigrants, mostly from Poland, socialist immigrants that were members of the Bund Party. The Bund Party at the time was maybe the most important political organization among Jews. It was founded in 1897, so at the same time as the Zionist movement, and they were both, let's say, concurring movements. And um, the members of this party here in Paris basically founded a club for the members and a library, and it was serving their needs. And throughout the years, of course, there were many Yiddish libraries in Paris at the time, about a dozen Yiddish libraries. And the Medellin Library was at the time not the biggest one, not at all the biggest one. Miraculously, or with the help of the librarians at the time, the, the books of the library were saved during the destruction. So uh, the Gestapo actually came to, to confiscate the books, and the books were hidden in a cellar. And that way, 3,000 books at the time were saved and were not taken by the Nazis. And then after the war, the books were recovered and the library opened again and then reopened in October 44. And it reopened not just as a library and club, but also as a meeting place for survivors, a place in which uh, Jews all from all around Europe, because a lot of Jews came to Paris after the war when they were looking for relatives or looking for a job or looking for help people who didn't know French necessarily, they knew that there was a couple of Yiddish-speaking institutions. Uh, one of them was the Medem Library, and they came to look for help. It served also this function. Uh, the Medem Library was part of a network, let's say, of solidarity uh, among survivors uh, after the war. And then from the 40s until the 90s, more and more Yiddish libraries closed. The number of Yiddish speakers uh, diminished and there were less and less readers. And the Medellin Library simply inherited the libraries that closed. So we got the books, and the library became bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it had to move. It moved a couple of times. And starting at the beginning of the year 2000, it became a full cultural center. Mm -hmm. So already from the late 70s, with the arrival of Yitzhak Nibolsky, who is perhaps the most important lexicographer of Yiddish today and one of the greatest scholars and I think the best Yiddish teacher <laughs> there is uh, today. He came from Buenos Aires to, to do the catalog of the library in 78 here in the Medem Library. And he immediately decided to teach. And he started courses and they started seminars. 
And the library slowly became also a center of teaching the language, which was very revolutionary for this generation because a lot of the people at the time didn't think that Yiddish is a language that has any future. They thought that Yiddish is their language. And after the destruction, after the annihilation of almost the entire European Jewish culture during the war, they are the survivors and they are going to be the last ones who are going to speak the language. And when Yitzhak Niborski and others started to speak about the importance of teaching it, the importance of finding younger people who would like to read the literature and recreate or become new segments in the chain, let's say, that was revolutionary uh, here in Paris. But from the late 70s on, uh, we can speak of a sort of a renaissance, a new interest, also the fact that uh, Yitzhak Bashevi Zinger uh, got the Nobel Prize at 78, the same year that Yitzhak Liborski came to Paris, of course contributed. Some people were reading Bashevis in translation and were interested in reading him in original. So the, the library evolved into a center until it finally became, at the beginning of the 2000s, Maison de la Culture Yiddish Bibliothèque Medem. In English, we say Paris Yiddish Center Medem Library. And today it is the biggest Yiddish center in Europe with the biggest library and the most important center of teaching Yiddish in Europe and I would say one of the three most important centers of teaching Yiddish in the world. I think that our specialty in terms of teaching is the most advanced levels. So, of course, we have a lot of courses for beginners, second year, third year, etc. But we have classes and seminars of the highest levels that you can have actually in the world. You have a lot of students of Yiddish who, who do Yiddish, let's say, in Harvard University, in Colombia, and they do one year, two years. Sometimes there's a university that offers a third year, but after that, either they do it on their own or they're looking for other places where they can continue. This is basically one of the only places where you can truly advance beyond a certain stage in terms of like becoming a real expert in, in the literature and culture. And who are those teachers who are important to what drew you to Yiddish culture? So every one of us has a different story. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of non-Jewish teachers here yes. who were drawn to Yiddish for their own reasons. Mm-hmm. I am Jewish and that was the language that was spoken in my family for generations and generations and generations until the generation of my parents which was the first generation that did not speak Yiddish. And a lot of people in my family and among my friends, when they heard that I study Yiddish and that even later that I made it my livelihood, I've become a director of Yiddish Center, they are very surprised. Yiddish? How come Yiddish? Why Yiddish? Even they laugh sometimes. They are very surprised. And I think that what I'm answering to them is that there's nothing surprising about the fact that I study or speak Yiddish. The real surprise, the real question that has to be asked is how come my parents, this last generation, didn't speak Yiddish? Because for hundreds of years, if you consider my family, for hundreds of years, my family on both sides, on all sides, they spoke Yiddish for hundreds of years. And just one generation, the generation of my parents, decided not to speak it. They decided to switch to another language. And then their child comes back to Yiddish. If you look at it as a graph, (laughs) I am not the surprise. I'm a continuation of something that makes total sense. It's the big question is, how is it possible that in the 
20th century in Europe, in Russia, in the United States, of course also in Israel, in so many societies, the vernacular languages of Jews, in particular Yiddish, which was the most important vernacular language of Jews before the war, remember that about 95% of all Jews spoke Yiddish before the war. Okay, that was not just one language. Mm -hmm. That was the language of the Jews. Mm -hmm. Of course, there were others, but that was the majority. Um, the, the great question is, in what historical circumstances brought to the fact that it diminished so rapidly, and of course, the Holocaust, of course, mm -hmm. the genocide, the Nazi genocide, but not only, mm -hmm. right? Because Yiddish was replaced by English in the United States and by French here, and Yiddish was discriminated against and oppressed in Russia. And uh, you have uh, exactly the same generation that stopped speaking Yiddish, mm -hmm. corresponds to the generation also of my parents in Israel, where also Yiddish was discriminated against and treated as not a language worth speaking and replaced by Hebrew. So you have this, if you want, a global phenomenon mm -hmm. of contempt and neglect and ignoring of this language in so many places. And of course, it all began with the genocide, but after the genocide and the, the great immigration of the survivors to other places in the world, Yiddish was completely brought down. So for me, what made me go, I mean, isn't, isn't it enough? <laughs> to save a language, uh, yes, or to be one to help save it or preserve it, yes. To preserve it, yeah. and I will say even more. To preserve is very altruistic, mm -hmm. but there's something also very egoistic for me. And yeah. I study Yiddish in order to understand who I am, in order to understand where my family comes from, in order to be able to read the texts that made me and my parents and their parents who they are. Mm -hmm. So for me, to learn Yiddish is a way of understanding, of knowing I have an insatiable curiosity to this language, into this culture, into this literature. And this is basically, you know, between mm -hmm. us. The question, why does somebody start to learn Yiddish? It's a fair question. It's mm -hmm. an interesting question. But the fascinating thing is why do they keep learning it? After the being exposed to Yiddish at the first time, you don't speak Yiddish yet. But if you will learn... <laughs> exactly. Maybe you can teach me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't know exactly why. Maybe I'll convince you. And maybe you'll do Yiddish one year, and then you will see mm -hmm. that it draws you so strongly. Mm -hmm. It's like a treasure chest mm -hmm. that you open, and you couldn't believe what you found there. It's not just a nice language to speak, like Esperanto, great, that you can go to conferences and speak with other people a in the world. A useful language. Useful yeah, and... Uh, yeah. oh, oh. It's an imaginative language, yes. Yiddish opens up treasures mm -hmm. that you didn't know exist. Mm -hmm. And this is true for Jews and non-Jews alike. People who start learning Yiddish very often get sucked in and cannot stop because the curiosity is too big, because the reward of what you get from it, not just in terms of, of, of aesthetics, of beauty, of interest, but also there's a certain philosophy. Mm. There are certain ideas mm. that you get exposed to once you get inside this culture, that universal ideas, not Jewish ideas, universal ideas, mm. that, that just lie there in this language. And once you discover it, it's just impossible to stop. For me, it's impossible to stop. So I cannot stop. 
learning Yiddish. I cannot stop. It's interesting because uh, the writer Etka Kert, and I know he writes in Hebrew, but to me he seems he's had to have a very Yiddish character in his imagination. He described it to me as Yiddish being a lost paradise of everything that he had the same big curiosity. His parents would say, oh, of course, spoke Yiddish, but he thinks he didn't understand, and they say, oh, but it, in Yiddish, it's much juicier, it has so much, it's more alive, you know? So he had this sense of it. I, uh, yeah, I think I understand completely this idea, but I have a suggestion to Mr. Keret. <laughs> yes. Uh, it is a lost paradise yeah. for him right now, yeah. but if he will learn Yiddish, yeah. he will notice that it's actually not that lost. If he will learn Yiddish, yes. then he will f- truly feel paradise. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the amazing thing, uh-huh. that the culture was destroyed, the people were killed, the mm. books were burnt. And if you think of the Jewish culture that existed here in Europe, now you walk in the streets, no matter in which European capital, it's non-existent. And what mm-hmm. people think about Jews or what they associate with Jewishness or Judaism has nothing to do with what was here before 39. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it's lost. But once you learn the language, you get this realization, nothing is lost. It's mm-hmm. all there. It's mm-hmm. just waiting on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And you just need to learn the language and find yourself a, other people who are interested. And you, this world exists in a very real way. Mm-hmm. And it's here. We just need to open the book. And I think that this is the amazing thing that the Yiddish culture did, that Yiddish culture, because it's diasporic, because it's not connected to a place, mm-hmm. it's not connected to a geography, found a way throughout centuries and centuries, and before there was Yiddish, it was Jewish culture that did the same thing, to find a way to encapsulate certain realities in the text, to encapsulate whole lives mm-hmm. within words, mm-hmm. within books. Mm-hmm. And the book carries this culture. The books carry this civilization, mm-hmm. not a place not a state, not demographics, not yes. statistics. So it doesn't matter if there were 13 million Yiddish speakers before the war and now they are just one or maybe a bit more million speakers. It doesn't matter. Even if there would be just 12 speakers, if there won't be any speakers, mm-hmm. the books are there. So the culture is saved in that sense. And this is, in a nutshell, this is what we do here. That brings us to Yiddish Land, uh, your summer educational program. So tell us the thinking behind that. Our main vocation, what we feel is our duty, mm-hmm. is first of all to preserve the books, preserve the culture in terms of preserving knowledge, but also teach it and enlarge the number of people who can access it. It's as if we are these guardians of a paradise, mm-hmm. to use uh, Edgar Keret's word, mm-hmm. right? It is this paradise that people think is lost. We guard it, we, we cultivate it, mm-hmm. but we also think that it's our duty to show people that they can enter mm-hmm. and to be open for everybody and yeah. to open the doors very widely. Mm-hmm. So we f- try to get people to see the advantages of learning this language for themselves mm-hmm. and how amazingly rich and, and beautiful is this language and culture. And we don't want to do it only for Jews. We want to do it for anybody who's interested, no matter the age, no matter the nationality, no matter the religion. 
And this is, of course, done through yearly courses. Uh, we teach it. But in particular, this is also done by intensive programs in which we allow people from all around the world to come for three days, one week, three weeks, for a specific moment and just immerse themselves in language and literature. And actually, when we have these big events, the summer programs, we have a summer program in Paris and we have a summer program in Berlin, we organize a summer program in Berlin because we see it as our duty also to bring Yiddish to other places in which there isn't enough teaching going on. And Berlin has a huge potential. And we just took it as our duty to bring the summer programs also to Berlin. There are uh, summer programs in Yiddish in other cities in, in Europe, in Brussels. Uh, there was in Vilnius, not anymore, in Weimar, in London. And Berlin had this huge potential. And it's true. It, it, it worked uh, it was amazing. Last summer, we had the second summer program, and we had 80 students from really uh, all around the world. And once you get them together, and they study Yiddish, and they speak Yiddish, and they read and think of Yiddish literature and culture throughout these three weeks, you notice that something else is being recreated there. It's mm -hmm. not just a pedagogical experience. Mm -hmm. It's not just a great way to learn a language but the kind of relationship between themselves and the teachers, this kind of community that is mm -hmm. being formed mm -hmm. through this venue, is truly that which I think has been termed Yiddishland. Right? Mm -hmm. Yiddishland is a term, uh, Yiddishland is, it's not the name of the program. Yes. Yeah? But Yiddishland is this term that was coined sometime in the last century, and had many different meanings. And today it's mainly used to speak about this non-geographic, non-territorial understanding that there's some kind of a culture that exists not in place, but in language. And it's an identity or community that does not need to have uh, passports, does not need to have a minister of foreign affairs, it doesn't need to have an army, of course, it doesn't need to have a flag. And, uh, it the, cannot be taken from you. And, then. and it cannot be taken from us, exactly, exactly, mm -hmm. because it's diasporic. Mm -hmm. And whenever something is defined by boundaries, mm -hmm. be it spatially or temporally, Whenever you define something in boundaries, then it can be taken away from you. Mm -hmm. So that's also, by the way, why I, I don't like when people speak about Yiddish in terms of life and death. Mm -hmm. Like, is Yiddish alive? Is Yiddish dead? Is it being reborn? I think that life is precisely this limited form of existence that is defined by being what is between birth and death. And if you think of culture in terms of life, then you actually accept that it's going to die, because everything living is going to die. But Yiddish cannot die. Culture, actually, in my opinion, cannot yeah. die, because yeah. it never lived. People live. Mm -hmm. Culture is a different form of existence. It, mm -hmm. For example, as I said before, if Yiddish will be forgotten completely, mm -hmm. it's still there for the taking. Right. I don't need my children to speak it, and their children to speak it, for the language to survive. Mm -hmm. I just need the books to be there. Right. Right? Then in a thousand years, they can be rediscovered, as is being done all the time. 
That's really a beautiful thing because you can be in conversation with history. Our walls are sometimes decorated with books. Uh, these are not books of the library in terms of cataloged books. We won't put them like here for everybody. These are books that are for sale. Mm -hmm. uh, we get a lot of books whenever somebody's parents died and they find Yiddish books and the children, they can't read it, so they bring it to us. And whatever we don't have in our catalog, uh, we, of course, we use it, we catalog it. Uh, sometimes, of course, we, we have at least two copies for every book. For rare books, we have even three or four. And then what do you do with the fifth, the sixth and the seventh book? Well, we put it here for sale and people come from all around the world and they browse throughout the corridors of the center and find the, we have it also in, in the classrooms. It's sorted alphabetically and that's also a way of saving those books, right? Yes. Finding people that would like to read them. <laughs> to love them, yeah. Yeah. Chinik is a teapot in Yiddish. And uh, Chinik is also a word that is used in uh, the expression Hakmir Nishken Chinik. It basically means don't be a pester. It is meant, of course, as a joke. Maybe you have it for a tranquil moment, your tea time. Yes, exactly. Yes, okay. And then, then somebody yeah. bothers you and you tell him Hakmir Nishken Chinik. Okay. So stop bothering me. There are a lot of stereotypes uh -huh. that are connected to Yiddish oh. as if it's a language of humor, mm -hmm. a language of the street, mm -hmm. a language that has more affection than other languages. Mm -hmm. And I think, well, of course, if people are exposed just to jokes, mm -hmm. then they think that the language is a language of humor. And if they remember words that their mother used to tell them, then they mm -hmm. think it's a very affectionate language. But actually, mm -hmm. what we are trying to say is that Yiddish is just like any other language. It has affectionate words, it has humor, it mm -hmm. has everything. But instead of reducing it and thinking that Yiddish is one thing, or Yiddish is this neatly sweet... Uh, oh, I think that was yes. the, the action that you got there. Uh, Yiddish is a language of high literature. Yiddish is a language that you can express everything in this. You can speak about uh, engineering in Yiddish. It's a language of love and a language of political debate. It's a language of philosophy mm -hmm. and of mathematics. You can use it for everything. I was really quoting Edgar Carrot, so I think that if for a writer yeah. to speak of a language being juicy, that's like a high compliment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, yeah. of yeah. course it is a compliment. I think that Carrot has a lot of, not only affection, but appreciation of Yiddish. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of respect there to the language, yes. and, and I know that it was very important for him that some of his uh, works will be translated now to Yiddish, mm -hmm. and uh, that's something that I also have a lot of respect to. But the idea that Yiddish is a lost paradise, or that Yiddish is a juicy language, and so on and so on, these are not just notions of a writer. These are actually the ways in which Yiddish is understood in Israeli society. Mm -hmm. And I, I grew up with this as well. Yeah. So this idea that it's not a real language of culture mm -hmm. and literature, but it's this jargon. It's not mm -hmm. a real language. It's a language that you would use with your parents, but you won't use it for culture. Right? We, we got this idea that there's a very small reserved place for the language which is not high culture. You see what I'm saying? So we spoke about what Yiddish had to deal with during the war, where its speakers were literally massacred, and after the war, mm -hmm. uh, in so many places where, in order to integrate 
into French or American or Russian or Israeli society, uh, uh, Jews felt that they have to lose the Yiddish. They felt that they have to forget it in order mm -hmm. to assert their identity as French, American, Russian, or Israeli. Speaking completely as an outsider yeah. to the language who has read just only works in translation right. from Yiddish, I might share some of those impressions, but from a very affectionate angle. But I just think as an outsider or someone who, who writes, who is an artist, and really values things that are languages that give its speakers and its writers rich vocabulary and access to their imagination. Yeah. That's to say that for me to say, if I say it's juicy or imaginative yeah. or vernacular or whatever, it's like putting it on a pedestal, I think. Yeah, That's how I view it. Yeah. I think, for me, what I value in written literature, I believe high culture always has an element. I don't want to say of the street, but I want to say uh, the value of literature is in its intimacy. Yeah. So I think, for me, it's a, I hope it is a compliment. But of course, it can be used, and I don't know all the different ways it can be used, political discourse and that, yeah. but it's great that it has these other aspects. I agree, of course, yeah. and, and historically speaking, we can also say that it's true, it is, Yiddish is a vernacular. Mm -hmm. Yiddish was a vernacular. Yeah, Yiddish I think that's a power, is what I mean. Yeah, it's a power. It's a strength. Uh, yeah, I understand what you're yeah. saying. Uh, I, I do have something to say about uh, mm -hmm. about it, but I'll give you this. Of course, mm -hmm. Yiddish, from an historical point of view, here in Europe, mm -hmm. Jews were using several languages. Mm -hmm. So they, like a Jew living in Poland, would of course know some Polish because you mm -hmm. have to. But the first language that they would speak is mm -hmm. Yiddish. Yes. And if they were men and learned mm -hmm. and had some religious education, they would also have Hebrew mm -hmm. as a language. And the division of labor between these languages was very clear. I mean, mm -hmm. Yiddish was the language of day-to-day -day conversation. And mm -hmm. of course, family conversation, friendly conversation, whereas Hebrew is a language of high ideas and of religious ideas. And if you would write a book, I would say, in the 18th century, you would write it in Hebrew. You won't write it in Yiddish. There were, of course, also exceptions, yeah. yes. always. But in terms of how it was understood culturally, Yiddish was considered as the vernacular against Hebrew, which is the non-vernacular, and the other vernaculars of the non-Jew, mm -hmm. be it Polish, Russian, or whatever. So there is, of course, because of this role of Yiddish as the vernacular, as not the serious language like Hebrew, also you have it in Yiddish, this idea that it is a language of affection, if you mm -hmm. wish. It's something that exists in the language. I give you that, it's true. I don't want to dismiss this. But at the same time, what I, I'm trying to say here is that Yiddish had to fight for its right among other languages. And its literature had to fight for its right among other literatures against so many enemies, if you wish, so many different, uh, let's say, configurations or, or structures that tried to oppress it, be it literal, literally, like mm -hmm. mm, through killing, mm -hmm. but also it had to fight an inner strife within Jewish mm -hmm. uh, culture since, like we, we speak about the Jewish enlightenment, Moses Mendelssohn, the great Jewish philosopher, mm -hmm. he, who is by some considered the first great thinker of Jewish modernity, 
his mother tongue was Yiddish, but he took it as a life project to fight Yiddish and to tell Jews to stop speaking it. And Jews, for him, in Germany, had to either speak German or Hebrew, but not this language which he considered filthy, not a real language. And you have, throughout centuries, Yiddish as a culture had to fight within the Jewish uh, community those who try to consider it as a non-language. And Yiddish authors, you have Bashevi uh, Zinger next to Yudlamed Peret and Hey Leivik and Opatoshu and Sholem Aleichem and Bialik on Yud Yuzinger and Mandelmeicher Sforim and Sholemash. Sholemash is there? I don't think Sholemash is here. We don't like him. But basically, all of these people had to fight for the recognition of Yiddish. All of these people uh, had to uh, face other Jews who told them if you want to be a serious writer, you write in Hebrew, you don't write in Yiddish. So you have this. And today, again, if you ask people what is Yiddish, many people will say that they don't know it exists. They, they think it's, you mean Hebrew? Many people won't know the difference between Yiddish and Hebrew. And those who do, who did hear Yiddish today, many think it's a language of jokes. Many think it's a la language of, of the kitchen. Mm -hmm. or, 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 or funny, funny phrases. This is something that I grew out of. Mm -hmm. I, uh, growing up in, in Israel, growing up in Jerusalem, that was clear for me, that whenever somebody said anything in Yiddish, and it didn't matter what they said, it's a punchline. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's like the funny language, oh, right? Okay. Now, you can think it's nice. Mm -hmm. you can, I agree with you. I also like humor. Mm -hmm. I mean, humor is hard, so that's, you know. Yeah, it's great. But at the same time, think of how restrictive and how, how limiting and actually oppressive is this characterization of Yiddish as a juicy language. Mm, okay. I completely respect the importance that some Israeli authors today have for Yiddish. They understand that there was something here that was negated. They understand mm -hmm. that there was something that needs to be rectified. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the vocabulary that people have to refer mm -hmm. to what Yiddish actually is, is too often the same vocabulary that presses it. We need to go beyond these qualifications. We need to go beyond this idea, is Yiddish uh, juicy or funny or affectionate? Or Yiddish is a language. And it, yes. and it as every language, it has a huge spectrum of expression. Right. And, in, and if you want to, to say what is specific about Yiddish, mm. okay, it's a language that is, was spoken by minorities. It is a language that was spoken by a minority that is dispersed, not in one place, but all around the world. This is something interesting, mm. right? Like English, like Arabic, it's a diasporic language. It's not a language of one place, but of many. This is a qualification that is true. It's a Jewish language. Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. It is a language that had a lot of shared history with German, right? It is not the daughter of German. Mm -hmm. It is the cousin of German. Both okay. of them developed together. So mm -hmm. many people who speak Yiddish understand German. Many people who speak German understand some Yiddish. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is something that can be said about the language. Mm -hmm. For me, the Maison de la Culture, it's actually one of the key places where our constant work is to show people that Yiddish is not only that which they thought it was.
It's very interesting also as you engage with people who are not themselves Jewish or coming from a Yiddish background, why they are drawn to the center to learn the language. I mean, in terms of the different culture centers of Yiddish in different parts of the world you mentioned, what are they finding in it? It absolutely is for different reasons. Mm -hmm. The main difference between Europe Mm -hmm. and the United States and Israel, Mm -hmm. I would say these are the three main centers today where Yiddish is being taught and where there's cultural activity around Yiddish. So the first separation is between religious and non-religious, okay? So the overwhelming majority of Yiddish speakers today are Orthodox Hasidic Jews. And this is particularly true for the United States and for Israel and also to a certain degree to Europe. We are already on the margin of that because this, the, the culture that we conserve, preserve, and propagate and teach, it's the not necessarily religious language, the language, the secular modern Yiddish, okay? Which was a big thing until they massacred like five million of the six million that were killed in the Holocaust. They were Yiddish speakers. And as I said before, many of the Yiddish speakers simply were unable in other countries to to transmit the language further to their children. So this is true for the secular Jews, whereas the religious, the Orthodox Jews, did manage to transmit the language. So if you, statistically, if you're interested in who are the people who learn Yiddish today, I would say these are little Hasidic children in Brooklyn, or in Bnei Brak in, uh, in Israel. That's the majority. Unfortunately, this is not our field. We are concentrated on the secular modern culture. And here I would say that the main difference between Europe on the one hand and Israel and the United States on the other is the fact that the overwhelming majority of people who are interested in Yiddish in the United States and in Israel are Jews. The overwhelming majority. People who are not Jews are just the minority. Whereas here, in Europe, and this is true not only for France, it's also true for Poland and it's true for Germany, the overwhelming majority of newcomers to the language, of people who decide to learn it, usually young people, the overwhelming majority is non-Jews, okay? So here in the center, we are somehow in between because I, th- I would say that the majority of students here are Jewish because they are not the young people. The, the majority of our students are, let's say, 50 years old and older. These are people who didn't come to Yiddish because of us. They came to Yiddish because they heard it at home mm-hmm. and they forgot it or they repressed it. And then they decided to come back to it. So like me, mm-hmm. right? Actually, the people that I teach here, who are 50, 60 years old, are very much like me. We heard it a bit, it was part of our identity, and it was suppressed, and we understood that it was suppressed, we understood it was a bad thing, and we said, okay, let's go back. But if you look at the new people, especially young people coming to the language in Europe, the overwhelming majority are non-Jews. And this is a great question. Why are they interested in Yiddish? Now, in Germany and in Poland, you could say, okay, this is a question of feelings of guilt. That's usually the explanation. 
First of all, I don't think it's true for Poland. I don't think that the motivation for young Polish to learn Yiddish, and this is the most important country today in terms of young people coming to the language, I don't think it's guilt. I think it's something else. I think there's a true, deep cultural and historical understanding of those young Poles that Polish culture cannot be separated from Yiddish culture. Jews made up such a, a huge proportion of Polish society before the war. I think that Krakowie had even more than a third before the war were Jews. Yiddish was almost an official language in some of those places. Also non-Jews in Warsaw, many spoke Yiddish because that was, there were like hundreds of thousands of Yiddish speakers then. And for hundreds of years, Yiddish was a part of Polish culture. And these young Poles, I don't think that they have different questions than my own questions. They also have questions of identity. And they try to understand what is Polish identity. And the answers that they get, for example, from the government maybe are not uh, enough for them. Mm -hmm. And they think of Yiddish as a missing component of understanding where they came from. And they come to Yiddish as a sort of coming back to their own identity. I think that this is something very particular for Poles. They understand Yiddish not as something exotic, not as something alien, although they, they may be Catholic, right? Mm -hmm. But they consider Yiddish as something that belongs to them. And they rediscovered something that was lost for them. I think that people here in France, I, I can't, I don't know. I'm not a statistician. But the people who come here, to our center, the non-Jewish young students, they come, I would say, either for intellectual reasons or for political reasons. So intellectually, they come because they are immensely curious. Some of them already speak or have learned four, five, six languages. So they're polyglots. And they're coming to Yiddish because it's a fascinating language. And uh, as I told you before, once you open this window or door, you cannot close it. It's, it's amazing. It just sucks you in. You just want to learn Yiddish all the time. That's what happened to me. So it's really intellectual curiosity. It's people of, of great erudition that come here. And the other aspect, I called it the political. I think that there are a lot of people today who look for models for identity that are not oppressive and exclusive. If you think of it, national, religious, but even gender identities are basically exclusive identities. Even queer is excluding cis, right? Even yes. to be queer is not to be straight. So these are identities that are based on dichotomies, on oppositions. French is by definition not German. Of course, you can be both. But the idea of nationalism is French is not German and French is not Italian, etc. Whereas linguistic identities, what's so amazing about language as an identity is that it can be accumulated. I cannot decide now that I'm becoming Italian. I cannot. But I can learn Italian. I cannot decide to become Catholic and remain Jewish. It doesn't work like this. Either I'm Catholic or I'm Jewish. 
But if I'm Catholic, I can learn Yiddish and I can be part of this Yiddish land without renouncing anything. Nobody who opens this door and is truly and genuinely interested in the language and the culture has to leave anything behind. They can remain what they are. They can retain their religion, they can return their other languages and cultures that they identify with, they can be of whatever nationality or multiple nationalities, and they can become en plus. Yeah, they can become, in addition to what they are, also Yiddishists. The term Yiddishist has changed its meaning in the 20th century. Before the war, Yiddishist meant a person who believed that Yiddish should be the national language of all Jews. Today, a Yiddishist is a person who studies Yiddish and considers it as a constitutive part of their identity. It's a completely different understanding of what's a Yiddishist. Before the war, if a non-Jew would say, I'm a Yiddishist, people would laugh. It's impossible for a non-Jew to be Yiddishist. Today, you can be Yiddishist, and the fact, the question whether you're Jewish or not is completely irrelevant. Well, that's um, so beautiful uh, that it's a welcoming language, it's a, a, a language which uh, adopts different aspects of different cultures as well as gives to it. I was interested in something that you'd mentioned before about Yiddish culture and Yiddish writers and going back even, you were talking about the predominance of men on this world, but yeah. there were certain kind of visionaries within the Yiddish culture which were present in terms of oppressed people. They could find a voice within yeah. Yiddish. Yeah, so we look here at Yulamed Peretz, here, the guy with the mustache. He looks a bit like Stalin. He wouldn't have liked it, this comparison. It was a Pe popular style. Then. It was a yeah. popular style, absolutely. So Peretz was perhaps the greatest Jewish intellectual in modernity. And we consider him, from a perspective of Yiddish literature, as one of the three classic writers. But unlike the other two, he was also a public intellectual in the fullest sense of the word. And he understood profoundly not only the meaning of fighting for the oppressed, but not only Jews, but any kind of oppressed community. He also understood, and this is why I admire him, he also understood the dialectics of liberation and oppression. He writes in the beginning of the 20th century about socialism. And he writes about socialism saying that, of course, we have to be socialists. Of course, we have to fight for the rights of the workers. We have to fight for the oppressed. And there is no but. We have to be solidary with the workers. They are oppressed. But I tremble the day that they will get power. I tremble the moment that the oppressed will become the oppressor. And this idea, you find it also in Franz Fanon, right? We spoke before about uh, colonialism, post-colonialism. So Franz Fanon is later, right? We are here in the 1906, I think he wrote this. Here you see another man, the, you see the, the statue, the bust of Medem, Vladimir Medem, right? The Medem library is named after Vladimir Medem, who was the most important theorist of the Bund. 
of this Jewish Socialist Party that united uh, interests of Jewish workers throughout the world, but also was in solidarity with workers of all religions or all ethnicities, etc. A, a universalist, socialist movement that had this paradox. It was Jewish, but he didn't only fight for Jewish causes. He was the main theoretician. And in 1904, he wrote, he wrote this amazing book about the national question. How should socialists uh, relate to this question of nationality, of nationalism? On the one hand, nationalism is oppressive. On the other hand, nationalism is a way of liberating the oppressed, right? He was writing in a period where nationalisms were starting to find a way to fight for their recognition and self-determination. And he's writing as a Jew. There are no, not a lot of examples of more oppressed nationalities or oppressed peoples at that time. He was writing when Jews in Tsarist Russia were a, a very oppressed minority. And he writes the same things that Peretz writes and says how history shows us again and again and again how liberation leads to oppression. How whenever one group becomes dominant, even if, if it was oppressed before, then it becomes oppressive again. It can become oppressive after it has been liberated. After it has liberated itself, it can now oppress others. And, well, his opinion was that socialists should be neutral to the question of nationalism. We should not be against it and not be for it. We should be neutral, which is, again, a non-answer. If Peretz says, I am a socialist, but I tremble once they get power, Medin says, I'm not a nationalist, but I'm not against nationalism. And I think, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, actually. I'm going very far it's away great. from It's great, you're going beyond. <laughs> I'm going beyond. I think that these are exactly the questions that we are faced today. Yeah. These are precisely the questions, how do you liberate the oppressed without creating new modes of oppression? How do you fight for identity politics? Mm -hmm. Think of identity politics and the traps and the hopes and the dangers. And these are the questions of today. And for, I think that these people on the wall, but actually the pictures don't really help me, but the books yes, in the library, mm -hmm. I open those books and I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking for inspiration and I'm looking for answers. And I'm, I have to tell you, I find it. My name is Alexander Taub. I am a recent graduate of Brown University with a dual degree in music and applied mathematics and an associate interviews producer for the creative process. As someone who maintains a primarily cultural rather than religious relationship to my Jewish heritage, I'm not surprised that the Paris Yiddish Center is a mainly cultural institution but I am fascinated by the degree of commitment to Yiddish that I didn't know possible without some more religious component. And I am certainly surprised by the fact that the majority of new speakers of the language are overwhelmingly non-Jewish, since Yiddish is so ingrained in the secular culture of Poland, for example. Tal Hiver Szabowski also raises several issues that really strike at the fabric of society. We might think otherwise given the historic oppression Jews have faced globally, but the Yiddish language was not always welcomed with open arms by the Jewish community. In reality, Yiddish had to fight for relevance within it, 
facing discrimination from English and Hebrew-speaking Jews alike. I was also particularly struck by his fear that the oppressed may become the oppressor, given enough power. He references this in the context of the oppression of Yiddish speakers, but I cannot help but think of this with regard to Israel as a nation-state, where they have for decades subjected Palestinians to occupation and displacement. Last but not least, I take significant inspiration from Tal Haver Shabowski in following his heart to pursue the study of Yiddish despite the overwhelming historical odds against it and his parents' generation being the first not to speak it. He even returned to Berlin, one of the cultural hearts of Yiddish before the Holocaust. I believe that sends a very powerful message that Yiddish and Jewish culture is something that simply cannot be erased. Now, back to the interview. And how can, I mean, on a personal level, yeah. and then as a way of opening those questions out to your students and to the visitors to the maison, how do you avoid or question those traps? Absolutely. I don't think that this is something that all teachers do. I think that each person here has, I mean, okay, it's very important to say that our organization, in terms of our constitution, is apolitical, yes. non-political, mm -hmm. and secular, mm. which of course is a contradiction because secularism is already a political statement. But this paradox, or let's say this recipe, mm. is a very important recipe because at the end of the day, our politics, if you want, is mm -hmm. Yiddish. Our yeah. politics is teaching the language, preserving the language, teaching the literature, preserving mm -hmm. the literature. It is political. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's neutral. I, I think it is a positive thing that we do in the world, and as such it is political. But we cannot allow ourselves to become political in the sense of, are you for Trump or for Hillary Clinton? If you ask people here what are the political opinions, you will see that you have very different political opinions here. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you don't ask, and we don't ask, is precisely what makes this work. Because if we start to picker about your Jewish identity is more religious or more national or connected to the state of Israel or connected to, to, to diasporism or that, once we start to create these kinds of uh, debates here, mm -hmm. then we forget the main objective, which mm -hmm. is Yiddish. Yes. Okay? But the theoretical questions that mm -hmm. I, I yes. spoke about, these are things that me personally are interesting for me. Mm -hmm. And in the courses that I teach, I find ways to, to raise them through reading of those texts, to put them on the table, so to speak. Yes. And I think that each teacher does that in their own way. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is not a line. I mean, everybody can do whatever they want. A teacher can bring whatever text they, they feel like. No, I think that those are very courageous and important questions. And I hesitate to ask sometimes too, because I think of our project of the creative process is an educational initiative. So I do avoid politics to an extent. But I think that it's actually their beautiful concepts or I don't want to say positions that you mentioned with Medem and yeah. that you my, have to question positions. your position. That's yeah. not the center's position. Yes, but it's okay that we yeah. can talk about it uh, because I think it is our responsibility to to remain open. I don't think it is very clear cut. And so I wonder, do you consider yourself here in France? I guess you're not in exile, but you're, mm. you, let me just speak about your background. You are born in California, but really you grew up in uh, Israel. 
Yeah. And do you prefer to... Your home is in Europe now. Do you prefer yeah. to, to live here? Yeah. yeah. I chose Europe. Yes. I chose to live in Europe and I don't regret this choice. Mm-hmm. You started to ask me if I'm an exile. I don't think that I... That anybody like me has the right to use this word, mm-hmm. thinking of people who are actually exiles. Yes. So I chose to live here, mm-hmm. but actually I could choose to live in many other places, mm-hmm. and places that I left are places that I can return to, and nobody will put me in jail. Yeah. So I refrain from using yeah, the word exile. No, 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 of course. Yeah. Uh, but you yeah. spoke about responsibility and yeah. positions, so yeah. it's very important for me to say it. Yeah. I do not consider myself an exile at all. Uh, I do consider myself as a diasporic Jew yeah. in the term, in the sense that uh, the place is the text. For me, the place is culture and literature and language and not a, a city. I happen to live between Paris and, and Berlin. Mm-hmm. These are the two cities in which I work and, and live, mostly Paris, but to a certain degree, Berlin. Uh, I lived in Berlin exclusively for seven years before I moved to, to Paris. And now I'm between the two, but mainly in Paris. This can change. Uh, this is not something that defines me. But absolutely, I did uh, decide personally not to live in the state of Israel and also not to live in the United States, which are the two states in which I lived before in my biography, let's say it yeah. like this. Yeah. Then what attracted you to both France and uh, Germany? So uh, let's begin with the easy one. I didn't choose France, I chose Paris because of the work here. Basically, that was the reason I came. Um, they were looking for a director. I was contacted and one thing led to another. They made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Not in terms of how much they pay me because they pay very little. No, in terms of this is a dream job to be able to work in culture and to do things that I believe in and not to make any compromises and to work with amazing people that I absolutely appreciate and learn from every day. I feel like I'm being paid to learn, which is amazing. So uh, I'm not going to get rich out of this job, but I will be richer in a spiritual way. And this is why I'm still here. That's my sixth year here. And I don't plan of plan on leaving anytime soon because this is just the most amazing place I could be in, which is not Paris and not France, but the Paris City Center, Madame Library. That's, I'm here for this place. Yeah. I'm here for this place. And this is the reason why I, le- I left Berlin. It was very difficult to leave Berlin because I love Berlin really as a city. And that's also the reason why I, I try to, to be in Berlin at least two, three months a year. Uh, and I have a brother there, I have a lot of friends there, mm-hmm. I have a lot of uh, cultural work that I started there that I'm continuing. And uh, I cannot just not be involved in what's going on in Berlin in many ways. This is also something that we didn't talk about, but as much as I am invested in Yiddish literature, I'm also invested in Hebrew diasporic uh, culture and literature. And this is something that I work on. I, I edit a journal for diasporic Hebrew and this is a work that has much less significance in Paris and much more significance in Berlin in terms of what is going on right now. So instead of choosing one thing, instead of choosing uh, one city or one language or one culture, I I have decided to choose many and uh, that's maybe part of what I answered before about what attracts people to Yiddish. 
or Yiddishism to, to this identity or mode of a culture of, of, of learning, of understanding the world, it's also the possibility of not choosing one thing over the other, but having several. And there's two threads I'd love to pull out of that because like uh, Sylvian had mentioned what is the Jewish-Yiddish community like in Berlin and another, so I don't forget, we should speak about your books because you are bridging uh, cultures. You've also written about an, uh, Edward Said and we should yeah. just discuss some of your books too. Of course. Yeah, with pleasure. Should I answer why I moved to Berlin? Ah, yes, you Before. can do that, yes. <laughs> so actually I decided to, for, for me it was 2008, The question was not so much where to go, but mm. not to live in uh, Jerusalem anymore. Mm. For me, the political situation, the, the hope of any kind of uh, change uh, for the better was... I didn't have any, mm -hmm. basically. And uh, I felt it was irresponsible to stay there, irresponsible to f start a family there, irresponsible mm. to wait until my children will have to go to the next wars, mm -hmm. etc. And uh, I decided to leave. Mm -hmm. So Berlin was one of several places that I thought of living to. Mm -hmm. And it was not the first idea. At, at first I thought of the United States. And then I also thought, well, if I'm leaving Israel, maybe not to the United States. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, I think I left for Berlin because I knew it. And I was there for, for a language course and I, I loved it. So I knew that I liked the city. And I come from history. I, I did my bachelor in history in Jerusalem, my master's in Berlin, and my PhD is also now in Berlin. I didn't finish it yet. And Berlin, uh, from an historian's perspective, is one of the most fascinating places, especially if you're interested in modern, like, contemporary history. A city that is so layered in history, so many different... If you take it from 1900 to 2000 and you think of just you're you're putting your needle in Berlin and you think how many regime changes how, how much did this needle see in terms of history that's just unbelievable and I didn't regret it I wasn't disappointed in terms of what the city taught me about Europe and about history in general and um, it also was a challenge for me I want to go to a city where the language that I will have to, to deal with is not English. Uh, so I, I spent a lot of work on my German. Uh, so now that I have to do the same thing with French, it's a bit difficult. <laughs> I do it, but we are having this interview in English. Maybe it shows you that I've gotten old mm -hmm. and not, I'm not as, I, I don't uh, learn new languages as easily as I did when I moved to Berlin. And I think that in many ways, Berlin, I moved there as an Israeli. And this is something that later became very fashionable. Today, and the, Berlin is talked about as the place number one where Israelis uh, want to leave Israel, the, where they go. I think this is actually not true. I think that actually in terms of uh, demographics, Israelis go much more to New York and to London still than to Berlin. But it represents something. Uh, Berlin represents something. And I think that's... Some people thought that Berlin represents some kind of a morbid uh, wish to come to the place from which the genocide started, right? As if going to the center of it all or to, to, to the forbidden place, some kind of a taboo breaking, uh, maybe there's some, something to, into it. But I think that a much more profound answer of why some Jews, and uh, not just Israelis, 
actually choose Berlin today and me also and this is something that I understood after the fact it's not something that was conscious I understood it later look Hitler tried to kill other Jews Hitler and Nazism tried to completely destroy Jewish culture in Europe and to go now and live in Berlin as a Jew and to create as a Jew to create culture in Hebrew in Yiddish is maybe the most subversive thing to history. History tried to remove us, to take us out, to tell us to go somewhere else. And what would it help to do another commemoration? What would it help to, to say never again? What would it help to, to, I mean, at the end of it, the most, the, like symbolically, the strongest thing that you can do is to say, I'm going to Berlin and I'm going to create Jewish culture there. Yes. And when I, I noticed how I answered that when people ask me, my family or some people would ask me, how come you can create in Hebrew or in Yiddish in Berlin of all places? And my answer was, well, exactly. That's exactly where Hebrew and Yiddish have to return. That's exactly where you need to create. It's easy to create in Hebrew or in Yiddish uh, I don't know. That space in Israel. is created for you, but you're saying we're still here. We've exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I won't go where history wants me to go. Mm-hmm. I won't go because some people decided in a room that, okay, all Jews are going to go that, that place and are not going to be in this place anymore. Mm. No. Yes. I'm saying this is a place that belongs to Jewish culture as much as it belongs to many other cultures and as much as many other places belong to Jewish cultures belong to them. And I don't accept this idea that Jews should not be allowed to create a Jewish culture in in Europe, in Germany, or in Berlin. And so, in terms of exciting contemporary Yiddish and Jewish writers, uh, particularly in Berlin or particularly in Germany, I mean, who are those that you, I mean, are publishing in your journal, or do you just really excite your imagination? So I prefer not so much to to speak about names, I don't want to, oh, okay. you know, discriminate. But I think more for me, it's more interesting to speak about it as a movement yes. from an historical point of view. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are asking about Israelis in Berlin. Mm-hmm. How come? Why do they come? And, and what does it mean? Mm-hmm. And I think always that the way for us to understand this is to understand the meaning of the word Israeli. First of all, Israeli means Jewish. Okay. Mm-hmm. Before forty-eight, the word Israel meant the Jewish people, and Israeli. This is an adjective meant a Jew. So in 48, now Israeli it means something else, but I'm a person of history and of books, and I open them, and I know what the words meant at the time. And when people speak about Israelis in Berlin, this expression also existed 100 years ago. There was an Israeli immigration to Berlin 100 years ago. People came from the East. It was not the Middle East. It was the East of Europe. Yes. And they came also because they fled wars, also because of economic reasons, also because they were drawn to the cultural hub that Berlin represented at the time. Actually, I think of what is going now as a sort of cultural repetition, something that we have, we have this term in Hebrew, it's called tikkun, in Yiddish tikkun, it's called uh, it's, uh, reparation. Mm-hmm. This idea that something is, the world is broken basically, mm-hmm. And the role of every person is to try to repair it. And if you think of the 20s, 
and you think of the Jewish culture that existed in Berlin in the 20s and all of the potential that it had. And that's a period in which I would have very much liked to live. Mm-hmm. And it was suppressed by the most horrific historical development that one could imagine. It was also before the genocide, right? Yeah. That culture was, was destroyed in Berlin already in the, since the beginning of the 30s. Uh, slowly, uh, Yiddish and Hebrew authors in Berlin understood that they cannot continue to work there in the atmosphere of racism, of anti-Semitism and warmongering, even before the, the genocide itself. And of course, the genocide completely destroyed everything. And I, I think that this is the real force that is working here. People coming back and trying to recreate these multilinguistic cultural activities, try to found journals and create a literary scene and find a way to recreate networks, cultural networks in Berlin. Of course, ne- it's never in seclusion. It's always in dialogue with other minority cultures and also with German literature and culture. You see it happening now and I think this is nothing to compare to what was in the 20s mm-hmm. in terms of production. Yeah, it's yeah. nothing. The 20s, it's unbelievable the kind of production that was done uh, at the time and if you compare it to today, it's, it's, it's very miserable. Mm-hmm. But symbolically, mm-hmm. there, is a, there is, I think, this tension of reparation, of, of, of recreating a sort of a diasporic mode of cultural activity uh, precisely in the place where it was cut off. Retie the chain. I told you before mm-hmm. about how this is totally normal that for generations in my family people spoke Yiddish and there was one generation that decided to suppress it and now I come and speak it again. Mm-hmm. For me, a lot of things with culture have to do with this linking chain, a chain that has been broken, to, to find again a way to connect to a segment that has been broken. Uh, yeah, it's all about uh, relearning or reimagining. So it's interesting how that also links up to, you have a production of Aaron Zeitlin's, you're explaining to me about, tell us about that, because the question is whether you will be uh, the first man and yeah. generate <laughs> culture. Yes, I think that uh, yeah, okay, so we have a cultural uh, season this, this year in, in the Paris Series Center dedicated to Aaron Zaitlin, who was an author, a, a poet, and also a writer of dramas, of theatrical plays, and also a journalist and a thinker um, who lived uh, in Europe before the war and after the war in the United States. He, in many ways, uh, is an illustration of things that I've, I've been saying to you today. Uh, first of all, he is uh, an example of a, a bilingual creator. He saw himself as writing in one language, mm-hmm. which is both Yiddish and Hebrew. Mm-hmm. For him, yeah. it was one language, but yeah. he wrote in both. <laughs> yeah, he, he didn't see them as separated. It's one language. That's a very interesting uh, take. Um, for him, it was the sacred language. Mm-hmm. Right? He wrote, wrote in Loshin Kurdish. Mm-hmm. The sacred language, and for him, the sacred language was not just Hebrew; mm-hmm. it was Yiddish and Hebrew together. He says, "I'm just writing in, he- in 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 the sacred language, but I don't know. I don't notice if it's Hebrew or Yiddish. Of course, that was uh, like a p- 
posture literaire, if you want. That was something that he, he tried to, like that was an artist's mask. But uh, in truth, he worked in both languages. Now, yeah, I think that Arendt Seitlin was one of those prophetic, uh, prophetic authors that we find in the 30s who saw the destruction about to come. He saw it coming. And his literary work is also a response to that. His literary work is a, is a warning of what is going to happen. And then, tragically, he had to live through it to see how uh, his entire family was wiped out. And in the Holocaust, he was the only survivor uh, because he happened to be in the United States when the, bro- when the war broke. And his family were... That was a very literary family. His father and his brother were very famous uh, Yiddish um, authors and, 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 and intellectuals in Warsaw, and they all were exterminated, uh, together with his son and his wife also. And Aaron Seitlin, from a prophet, he became this author writing after the, after the destruction and dedicating a great deal of great portion of his work to deal with topics of destruction and also from a very theological point of view like uh, apocalyptic I think that a lot of his work can be considered as an apocalyptic work and uh, yeah I told you before about this uh, play that we're doing this year Jacob Jacobson which was written in 1930 about about the destruction of the world through the Second World War that he projected to be a world war that will start between England and Soviet Russia. And that's what he thought. I mean, I'm not sure if he thought that is really, but that was the, that, that is in the play. And the world is being destroyed. And the only person who survives is Jacob Jacobson, the Jew, Jacob Jacobson, like the Jew, son of a Jew, right? Mm-hmm. Jacob Jacobson. And uh, the angels decide that they want to recreate the world or to recontinue the world. They cannot create the world. Only God can create the world. But God has completely lost hope. God does not want to, to have anything to do with this world after this destruction, after his creation, uh, simply destroy the world. And he, he suffers from a deep state of depression in the play. That's how it says. And the, um, the angels decide to find this Jacob Jacobson and make him into the new man, into new Adam, uh, to regenerate, to recreate the world. And the thing is that <clears throat> Adam, or Jacob Jacobson, uh, he refuses to assume this role. And basically he, he sees how there's going to be an exact, exact repetition, how the entire... Uh, human history is going to repeat itself. And why should we be part of a world that would bring another war and another destruction and another genocide? Why allow this world to appear, to exist, if the world or world history means so many deaths and so many, so much destruction? And I won't tell you how the play ends, but it's not a very happy ending. <laughs> and uh, I think that this play, if read as an explanation of the world, it's a very pessimistic play. And I don't share, let's say, the message. I, I, I don't think it's correct to think of the world as doomed. I decided to make this play, to, to produce it, and I'm directing it. Because I think that this, it's a very 
it's a very political play in terms of a warning. Mm-hmm. It's a play that was written in a political atmosphere, in a historical political atmosphere that is not very different than our own today, mm-hmm. uh, where very similar ideas and very similar dangers and worries are being uh, pronounced. And I think that to deal with these questions and to deal with the question of what do you do about it and how do you try to stop it and how do you try to intervene and how do you try... It's also a play about cooptation and about how um, art is being mobilized for war, how, how artists and also workers and all strata of society, uh, how easily it is to mobilize them for war. It's in that sense a very pacifistic uh, play. And Jacob Jacobson refuses this. He tries to show how if now we think it's a good war, we all agree about this war, but that's going to be the end of us. So we have to change it. And well, in the play, people don't listen to him. But I think that Arendt Zetlin wrote the play also with the hope that through this kind of creation, maybe people will start to listen. I think that also the worry that people might not listen does not mean that we should not shout very loudly and try to get them to listen. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to get people to listen. We're hoping that they will listen. And of course, what, what I said about Berlin, about how Berlin is a sort of a cultural repetition in the 20s, if the allegory or if this comparison is being taken seriously, of course, it sounds very doomed. Mm-hmm. And people might say, wait a second, if last time that there was a Jewish creation in Berlin, we saw how it ended, so is it a smart move to create in Berlin? Uh, should we not be afraid of what might Hi, happen? Don't let them know, yes. Don't let them know. Don't create this. Don't play this repetition. Like Jacob Jacobson, he would say, I know how the play is going to end. I know how history is going to repeat itself. We have to put a stop to it. Well, I think that if we believed in that, if we believed that the world is just a cycle of doomed repetitions, then we would uh, certainly not want to live here anymore. And you have to have some kind of hope. And through projects like your own or projects like my own, I think that uh, maybe there is a possibility of getting people to listen. And, well, you have to hope that people might listen. I think that that's a beautiful message, but I definitely, well, I'm on the side of arts and I'm on the side of the humanities uh, because I think that we have to. In terms of the way technology is changing the way we communicate with one another, you have to, but once you sit across from someone or once you read their books, you hold it in your hand, you hold it in your mind, all these different ways of experiencing others, that is foremost, I believe. The technology makes it so easy to have... Anyway, that's me interjecting my voice. No, no, no. So I'm interested you are an optimist. I don't want to say you're an optimist, but you are for creating. You're for celebrating culture. Uh, And I want to speak about some of your books, why you chose those projects. So Mikan Verlach is basically the project that brought me technically into Yiddish. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I came to Berlin, I was in 2008. I was struck with this identity crisis. What am I going to do with myself? Who am I going to be? Am I an Israeli? Mm-hmm. Am I Jewish? For the first time I ask this question because mm-hmm. a lot of Jews in Israel don't think that they don't understand what does it mean to be Jewish in Israel mm-hmm. because that's the dominant culture. Yeah. And to be Jewish in my perspective is always a minority uh, identity. So all of a sudden 
being in Berlin made me realize ah, I'm actually much more Jewish than I thought that I was. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm Jewish like my grandparents. And then comes a very complicated process of identity, uh, identity search, you can say. And in this process came the question of the language. What do I do with my language? Because mm-hmm. my native language is Hebrew. The language in which I dream and think mm-hmm. is Hebrew. And do I just put it aside? Do I just mm-hmm. learn German and become German? And then I thought to myself, no, I have to, to do something with Hebrew, but I want to do something with Hebrew not necessarily as part of Israel. Mm-hmm. I want to do something with Hebrew that has to do with where I am right now mm-hmm. in Berlin. And then started this whole research and I discovered, now it seems so obvious to me, but at the time it was very new to me, mm-hmm. that Hebrew was a very important language in Berlin for hundreds of years that Hebrew was a European language, that Hebrew was written in and also sometimes, but not very often, spoken in. It was a language of creation, of philosophy, of history, of geography, of not just of religious writings, but also uh, Hebrew has a lot to do with Europe. And I started to find a way through research at the beginning and then through this idea of creating a journal to give a place for Hebrew that is diasporic and then as the project got more and more uh, as it evolved I understood that actually well Hebrew has been a diasporic language for at least 2000 years so Hebrew has been the language of Jewish creation in so many different places and this idea that it's a language that belongs only to one territory and whenever people hear Hebrew they immediately associate it to one state it's something completely new. It's mm-hmm. very, very new. For hundreds of years, Hebrew was just the language of Jews. And they wrote in it. And they created in it. And for me, Mikan Velach, which uh, means from now on, or from here on, it's uh, both temporal and spatial, the, the title. For me, well, the idea was to try to create a platform for writers and thinkers to rediscover the diasporicity, if you want, of Hebrew, to rediscover the, the, the diasporic options that Hebrew has had and still has today. And to do that, to understand how Hebrew can be connected to many places and at the same time be local, but also translocal, to be a language that connects people from many different places, but also is anchored in specific situations each time. And there is always creation in this language Uh, that is connected to a specific place, this duality of local and translocal, for me to understand how to conceptualize that, I had to look for Yiddish. Yiddish gave me answers for Hebrew. I was looking for answers, for models Mm -hmm. of understanding what I was looking for in Hebrew through Yiddish. So Yiddish was for me the language in which Jews created all around the world, in a very local and translocal way, language that is a minority language, it's not connected to one territory, a language shared and that, that creates a sort of a culture and identity that is not based on one territory. And then I thought to myself, uh, I have to learn this language if I want to be able to create what I want to create in Hebrew. If I want this journal to succeed, it's not enough for me to read the Wikipedia page about Yiddish. I have to learn Yiddish and look for what they do in Yiddish, how Yiddish works, 
in order to be able to apply it to Hebrew. And this is basically my project. So it's not just a double project, it's interconnected. And as much as I learned more and more Yiddish, I also understood that I find answers to questions that I didn't pose even. For example, I found that as a Germanic language that has a lot of Slavic and also a lot of Hebrew expressions and words and, and linguistic structures, I found out that there's a diasporic Hebrew not only next to Yiddish in terms of history, but also within the language itself, in the words and the verbs and the structures, there is some diasporic Hebrew there. So I found something that I did not know that exists even. You see what I'm saying? Yes. I looked for diasporic Hebrew. I wanted to look for inspiration mm-hmm. in Yiddish, and I found more than inspiration. I found parts of this Hebrew within the language. It's like a palimpsest, you know, uh-huh. you are these traces. Ah, it, it is beautiful when that happens. So I'd like to read to you a short story by Avram Reizen. I'm reading to you from an edition, a bilingual edition that we produced, I think it was last year. And uh, you have French on the right side and Yiddish on the left side. And this uh, short story is, is called Es schockelt sich. It trembles. Es schockelt sich. Bei Nachmen, an Ormer Balabos in Stettel, lebt man ständig in ein Schreck. Und bei jeder Arbeit, bei jeder Bewegung, schreit man dort in Stiebel einer zum anderen. Pamelech! Bei Nachmenen, Es men kenmal ruik nicht ob kein bissel gekechts, weil wie me stellt weg die Schüssel auf den Tisch, hebt sich der Tisch an zu schockeln. Das beste bissel, die eberste, geh sich aus, und nachdem muss man vorsichtig essen, starren sich hat zu starken Rier nicht zu tun dem Tisch, geht ihn nicht auszugissen, das Rest bissel gekechts. Als me erst ob ruik an assi bei dem Warems, viel weder von Haus gesinnt, a der, der Geringerung und dankt in dem still Gottfahren Chesed, wo der Tisch hat das Mal nicht kaprisiert. Ärger is ober mit der Wetschere. Wetschere es men schon beim Lomp, und die Schreck wird in zweien, weil der Glas von Lomp, welche me hat gekauft in Fborg, is mit a Nummer größer, und sie schockelt sich um auf der Maschinke. Die Vorsichtigkeit wird größer, und wenn einer schreit, Pamelech, der Tisch, oder zweiter kommen zu Hilfe und schreien, Pamelech, die Glos. Und einmal, als es halt schmal sei der Tisch, sei die Glos, heben sich an zu schockeln, schreit man zusammen, noch verkehrt, die Glos, der Tisch. Und man hört auf zu essen, bis man beruhigt nicht beide um normale Häuswirtschaft. Nachmen und sein Häusgesehen haben schon zum Tisch und zum Lomp übergetrocknet viel Gules. Unter den hinkenden Fissel hat man eine Ziegel untergelegt. Nein, unter den hinkenden Fissel hat man eine Ziegel untergelegt. Es hat aber nicht geholfen, weil, weil die Podloge ist nicht das gleiche. Die Maschine von Lomp hat man mit dem Papier herumgedreht. Hat es gehalten, nein, offen. Und es ist wieder breit geworden und sich genommen schockeln, bis man hat sich mehr gewähnt und es ist geblieben so. Und noch Wetschere. Als man wird schon wieder ruhiger, hebt sich an als Sedre mit zwei Betten. Sie haben sich kentig angesteckt vom Tisch und schockeln sich schon auf... Äh, nein, und schockeln sich schon euchertliche Jahr. Und als man legt sich in sie heran, dacht sich, als ot ot fällt man von sie raus. Und noch mit Nissim schlaft man über die Nacht. 
Und einmal, als der Wind in Dreußen bläst, schockelt sich bei Nachmännern die Schäuben von den Fenstern, die Schindeln von dem Dach und das ganze Stiebel. Und dämmelt dacht sich Nachmännern, als Ort, Ort fällt alles im Ganzen ein und es wird gar nicht hoben. Nicht zerbrochen, nicht kein zerbrochen Tischel, nicht kein Glas mit der Nummer Gräser, nicht kein Betten, wo schockeln sich und nicht kein Altstiebel. Wonach man lebt ob sein ganzes Leben in Schreck und sein ganzes Leben schockelt sich. Voilà. It's basically a story about a very poor family where everything in the house trembles. The table trembles and you're afraid that the soup might slip and the beds in night tremble, the windows tremble, everything trembles and you always have to hold it, you always have to make sure that it, it will somehow stay stable for a while. It's like a very prosaic story about objects that tremble, but of course it's a metaphor for the precarious life of poverty, how everything trembles and through the night the protagonist tries to fall asleep always with this fear that maybe the, the entire house will tremble and fall, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's comic, but also tragic and an allegory not only of poverty itself, but also maybe of things that we talked about, about our very world. <laughs> the yes. tremble, that's why I chose this. So. I that it's interesting, a metaphor, because also the more that you can be sensitive, or if you speak, you, I understand that as a metaphor about Yiddish culture, the more that you mm. can be sympathetic for the fragility of things. Mm -hmm. We talk about oppressed or, how do you say, disenfranchised people, right. the more also you're sensitive to them all being alive. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the, I think this is the great mm -hmm. power of Avram and how we can create this empathy to objects. Mm -hmm. Empathy to the smallest thing yes. and try to make you care about the lamp on a table that mm -hmm. trembles because mm -hmm. the glass is a bit loose, right? Mm -hmm. You care for this, you care for the mm -hmm. smallest of things. It's not mm -hmm. just solidarity with mm -hmm. oppression, with poverty, with precariousness. It's also solidarity with the minor, with the small, with one family, with one person, with one house, one table and one lamp, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Caring for the details, for the small ones. Uh, and I don't know if we have time or if you'd like to read another work, but I find that as a great, like, it, it, it leads me to my, one of my last questions. Yeah. But would you like to read another work? Of course, I can read yes. whatever. <laughs> From Reisen, I can read you something else I have yes, here. If you like, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, Reisen? Uh, as you wish. As I oh. wish. So, you know what? I will read to you for Monish. Of Yud Lamed Peretz. That's mm -hmm. a beautiful, uh, it's for your eyes, not for mm -hmm. the microphone. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful book that was made here in Paris in 52, mm -hmm. just after the war. Look how mm -hmm. beautiful the art. Pinchas Shah, he, he made the, the typography and also the, these woodcuts. It's unbelievable. Ah, yes, it's great humanity. And think of it, 52. So here, this idea of recreating, continuing the Yiddish culture in Paris mm -hmm. after the war. The, mm -hmm. the, the survivors trying to, not just to create small things, mm -hmm. but to, they took the most classic poem by Yulamit Peretz, the guy with the mustache yes. I showed you before, <laughs> right? Uh, Monish, that is uh, his poem, and illustrate it. So I can maybe read to you the beginning, mm -hmm. okay? 
which is beautiful. I love this one. Irveist minastam, develt is a yam, mir zenen fish, tail zenen hecht, schlingen is schlecht, sogt efscher nicht, develt is a yam, breit on a shir, die fish zenen mir, de fischer is sam. Er hold sich als fischer beim Leben gestellt, die taive, das wärmel, fiert über die Welt. Es habt wohl die Angel, a Fisch noch a Fisch. Es dacht sich a Wärmel, a Blick noch, a Kisch. Nur bald noch ein Wärmel, geht Hacken und Strick. Geeckt mit dem Leben, a Sof von dem Glück. Und jeder weiß es und jeder kennt ihn, dem Schmadnik, dem Sotten, dem Sarf und Gehennen. Und selten ist Emmets beschirmt und behit, Ot eich zu warnen, sing ich mein Lied. It's an introduction of the poem about the dangers of Satan. How Satan is there waiting for us to tempt us. It's of course also with, with a lot of humor and he's taking a very pious and romantic idea like the Satan, like Dr. Faustus, right? This Satan that tries to, to seduce a small child uh, not to learn the Bible but to be seduced by this beautiful blonde European uh, woman <laughs> and, and it's about of course assimilation and identity and using a very romantic bala ballad form uh, to create in Yiddish a Yiddish ballad to speak about uh, identity questions in 1888 it was published in 1888 and at the same time if you want, a traditionalist or an anti-assimilationist poem, but at the same time, exactly a demonstration of how non-Jewish culture can be used and should be used as an inspiration for this modern Yiddish literature, right? To take the forms, the, the style of non-Jewish uh, non literature and creating it in one word. Yudlamet Peretz wanted Yiddish literature to be world literature. He didn't want it to be just the literature for Jews. He wanted. He was one of those who tried to, to show how Yiddish can be a, a language for world literature. Yeah. I think that is a beautiful and important message. And I guess, uh, in closing, I would like to ask you, from as looking back, uh, and, to, and of course, thank you for all you've done for the celebration of um, Yiddish and Hebrew and Jewish culture. But as you look back to history, as you think about your teachers and and what they passed on to you and your parents, what do you feel is important thinking about the future thinking about education what do you think is important for this generation to know and remember well I think I don't think there's one thing that needs to be remembered mm -hmm. or, or one thing that needs to be taught mm -hmm. I think that the only true thing a truly important thing is to learn mm -hmm. learning is not a, an instrument for finding the answer. Learning is the answer. Mm -hmm. Learning is the single most immediate, the most immediate and most important thing that we can do to fight discrimination, racism, sexism, any kind of oppression. Teaching, learning, creating, this is the answer for everything. When there was, were the terrorist attacks here, 
a lot of people wanted us to create some, to, to write some kind of, of a comment, to say something about it. And the only thing that I agreed that we should write is in face of hatred, the only answer that we know is teaching. The only answer is culture, teaching and culture, create creation. And I think that the major, like, the, I, I know what it has brought me and I know what it brings all the people that come here. And I think, I mean, you can't force anybody, but the single most important thing is not to stop learning, never. And I think that all, also throughout the interview, I, I said a couple of times or at least once, I don't consider myself just as a teacher. What I do here is learn. I learn here every day. I learn from my colleagues, I learn from my students, I learn through teaching and I just, to be here is for me a way to constantly be learning. And once you stop learning, that's the end of it, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure if this is the answer that you were looking for. But well, uh, I think another thing that you imparted <laughs> during our, our conversation, which I've appreciated so much, is that it's not about the, the answers. It's about always still asking and being open and that there is not absolutely. one. Absolutely. Yes. absolutely. I agree with that. I think it's really, really dangerous even to say, what is the one thing that we need to remember? Because mm -hmm. then the rest is useless. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is no one. Thing. We just need to learn and, and think of this question. Exactly. Yeah. I agree with you. The question is much more important than the answer. Absolutely. In <laughs> general. Chez les Juifs, c'est très important. Chez les Juifs aussi. Thank you, um, thank you so, so much, much Tal Hiver uh, Shoboski, for your life of perpetual learning and, and through that teaching, for all you have done to celebrate Yiddish, Hebrew, Jewish culture and to engage with other cultures, celebration of the local and the translocal. Thank you so much for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Alexander Taub. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.